the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Today's episode is brought to you by On The Rise. In my On The Rise newsletter this Friday, I'm sharing two Gen Z trends that I think are going to surprise you uh, to receive it. Go to ontherisenewsletter.com or visit the link in the episode description and buy 10 by 10. Take the two-minute 10 by 10 quiz to begin receiving free curated resources designed for your youth ministry needs. Visit tenx10.org. That's 10by10.org. Well, Today, I sit down with Russell Moore. He has had quite the journey over the last little while, and we go into the backstory about leaving the Southern Baptist Convention, why normal leaders have stepped away from ministry and allowed sometimes the fringe to step into church leadership, the real reason the culture is rejecting the church, weaponized nostalgia, and the outrage cycle. Yeah, we go into a lot of places. Hey, and just a quick note right up front. We're not bashing any tradition or denomination here. As you know, a lot of Southern Baptists are listeners to this podcast, and uh, I have a lot of friends who are Southern Baptists. I have a lot of friends who are not Southern Baptists, and things change and people change. So what I'm trying to have is just a conversation about all the dynamics at play so that you and I can have a better understanding. Make sense? Russell D. Moore is the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today and the former president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He lives in Brentwood, Tennessee, author of many, many books. And uh, I really appreciate it. This is my first conversation ever with Russell, so really happy to share it with you. So a quick question for you before we get started, a couple of them. What can the church do to grow resilient faith in Gen Z and the next generation? Well, this Friday... I'm going to share two interesting trends that you'll need to be aware of if you're trying to reach the next generation. One trend, not so new, but really important, easy to forget. The other, well, it's really going to surprise you. You can get it by subscribing to my On The Rise newsletter. It's my once-a-week newsletter delivered every Friday. I feature what I consider to be the most fascinating and curious content about leadership, faith, culture. Man, I share like sandwich shops and people go crazy for it. Best sandwich shops in every state. Stuff like that. And then obviously some trends as well well in our field of work. So if you want to start receiving On The Rise, you can visit ontherisenewsletter.com. You can sign up for free. You can get it along with 100,000 other leaders every single Friday. The content is exclusive. It is published nowhere else, and it isn't available after it's being sent. So just go to ontherisenewsletter.com. You can sign up. When you sign up, I'll send you a sample newsletter. You can get an instant taste of what it's like. And then speaking of the next generation, 10 by 10 is a collaborative initiative providing free and strategic resources. Did I say free? I think so. To reorient how we disciple young people. So if you're interested in really making a difference with the next generation, 10 by 10 wants to equip leaders and ministries around relational discipleship, radically focused on Jesus. It is a huge initiative. It transcends denominations, and it's just getting started. Over the next decade, they want to help 10 million young adults find faith in Jesus. Keep it, find it, all of that. Go to 10by10.org to take a personalized quiz and access free resources today. I'll spell that out for you. It's T-E-N-X-1-0.org. That's 10 
by10.org. You can get your free resources and take the quiz starting today. And now, hey, I just want to say welcome to all the new listeners. Man, we've had a ton of new listeners on the podcast lately. If you enjoy episodes like this, please tell your friends because that's what allows us to bring you the best conversations. And uh, we really appreciate it. Leave a rating and review. But now, without much further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Russell Moore. Russell, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. So you were raised in a pretty classic, strict, conservative upbringing. Is that fair to say? Uh, Well, of course, everything's relative. Uh, And uh, I would say yes, by most people's definition. But I knew people who were in much, much stricter <laughs> sorts of uh, sorts of religious backgrounds at the time, and and we were considered to be kind of loose and freewheeling to them. So I oh, guess you were, depends- you were the apostate liberals, were you? Yeah, I guess, yeah, because we uh, watched television and things like that. Uh, yeah. So let's. I don't think we've had uh, you know six hundred episodes in. I don't think we've had this conversation before. Well, you and I haven't. It's your first time on the podcast. I don't think we've had this conversation. What was like crazy strict in your childhood? You look back and some friends you knew or people you knew, what was like the the strict end of the strict spectrum? Well, I had a, a lot of friends who could not uh, watch television. The girls uh, had to wear skirts all the time. Um, there was a, uh, a really harsh sort of um, pastoring and parenting that would mm-hmm. call people out from the pulpit and and really a, a strict kind of authoritarian sort of parenting, uh, which we didn't have. And um, my, I've had people who were shocked at some of the things that that we would watch that weren't uh, risque, but like what uh, Bugs Bunny or like what are we talking well, about? Well, things that had magic in them, you know, oh, okay. that, that that sort of uh, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah. Okay, so that was hyper strict, but like it was uh, Barack Obama's White House where you had your first alcohol. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The the bless her heart, uh, the lady who was giving it. They had a naughty section and a nice section. Uh, okay. She called it, and uh, she accidentally gave me the naughty, uh, and so uh, that was uh, yeah. That okay. Was a little uh, bit so of more mom. about your upbringing because I hear this story all the time. I'm actually rather surprised that we haven't had that conversation more often. I mean, I guess Philip Yancey a little bit talked about his upbringing, but it was more about the abuse than than anything. But I'm reading Tara Westover's Educated, uh, you know, that kind of thing. It's just just crazy what some kids go through. So um, what were some of the good parts of that super strict upbringing? Because I think a lot of people can probably relate to that or at least a meaningful number. And then what were some of the... What wasn't great about your upbringing? Looking back on uh, it, it, it was um, it was mostly good. And, and yeah. again, I didn't see it as super strict, uh, right. largely because uh, my parents were not uh, super strict. My okay. parents um, were authoritative, but not authoritarian uh, in, in terms of parenting. So I never um, I, I never felt squashed. Uh, by mm. them at, at all okay. the way that some people do. And our church, it was uh, largely a very good uh, experience. It was a, a close-knit community of people. Um, they, sometimes I, I think, you know, they didn't really know how to do children's ministry. 
So they did the only thing they knew how to do, which was just to teach us the Bible. Mm. And I'm really glad. I mean, I yeah. was I was immersed in um, in the Bible from yeah from the very beginning. Uh, so I have mostly very positive uh, uh, memories and and responses to that home church. Mm. Um, but you know, we'll fast forward to a few years ago, and you're a relatively faithful um, leading church member. And you find yourself with the tribe you grew up with on trial for heresy. What happened? Yeah, well, I say heresy tongue in cheek. They didn't call it that. Uh, but it was a, a series of, you know, some people have heresy trials, some people have inquisitions. We had task forces, you know, <laughs> so you were really, task forced. Really, uh, yeah, committees, you're really bureaucratic uh-huh. uh, sounding uh, things. Uh, but yeah, you, I found myself in a situation where the context was uh, that there was an ever narrowing um, within our uh, tradition. And there was almost a, who's the next liberal? Uh, Mm. And so that kind of narrowing, which some people had warned me about years before, and I didn't believe it. I thought, no, 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 it's just uh, standing up for uh, basic convictions, biblical conviction. But that was true. And so there was always a, a narrowing to the point that I would think, how am I here uh, I'm a very conservative, evangelical, homeschooling dad of five. Uh, how, how are we having yeah. these conversations? And so, uh, yeah, it was kind of like, it's kind of like what's going on in a lot of institutions in American life and not just religious institutions. Uh, you have the institutions in crisis and declining and that leads to a situation where, for lack of a better word, the normies, uh, the the grownups who normally would have uh, run things, pull back, and you have uh, you have some people who have uh, very quarrelsome, destructive uh, sorts of patterns, who are left unchallenged because everybody else doesn't really understand that psychology. And so they assume, well, if you just kind of ignore this and uh, maybe uh, give uh, more and more, just uh, just do what they want you to do, that then that will bring about some kind of unity, and it doesn't work. It's interesting that you make the point about the normies or sort of the broad middle, which we have talked about quite a bit on on this show. And it's an interesting observation, Russell. So you're saying in the particular cultural moment we're in, people who would be more moderate, people who would be, um, you know, representative of perhaps the majority of people tend to step back in a season yeah. like this. Can you explore that a little bit? Like, why does that happen? Yeah, and I, I can see that happening uh, every day in church after church after church. I can see it happening in the United States Congress uh, and in all kinds of other institutions. What happens is you can have a very small group of people who can absolutely control the uh, temperature of, uh, of an organization because they're willing to do 
almost anything, uh, or, or at least they're willing to do things that normal people would not be uh, willing to do. And so you have the, the majority, often the, the vast majority of people who, because they're not given for all kinds of good reasons, they're not given to fighting and craziness and, and all these things, they start to just step back and to disengage. Mm. Uh, and, and their whole, I mean, one of the things in our uh, denomination, uh, it took a lot of work to convince the healthiest people to be involved. You, wow. you had to tell them this is why you need to be here. And because they didn't need to have some sort of a honorific title of having served on some board or some committee, they had lives and ministries that they were carrying out, which left often the people who really wanted to be there and who really wanted to be at a microphone at a meeting. And that's not, uh, that's just, that's just, not a um, a balanced way of going forward. And so a lot of times what happens in, for instance, take, take a, a local congregation. Uh, you've got a small group of people who maybe they're coming up against uh, the pastor. And what they do is to start uh, just one thing after the other uh, coming in, and and there's all kinds of the same tactics that are, that are involved. Well, even if 90% of the people are perfectly happy with the pastor, what eventually starts to happen is those 90% start saying, wow, we're really exhausted by this. Why is the pastor always in controversy? And so what they're going to do is to eventually come to him, usually, and say, why don't you just kind of apologize or make this go away because the the pastor can't really respond because if he does, that, that small group of people will say, oh, look at the pastor being divisive. So mm. you can't wow. you can't do that. And so it's a it's a very, very difficult place to be. And you eventually end up then with those those good people just getting worn down and they get exhausted. And that leads to, I mean, there's a, um, there's a really important book uh, Brian Kloss uh, wrote called Incorruptible. I think about it all the time, where he talks about his mom, who was a school board member. And she was a school board member because she cared about kids. She cared about education. It was mostly a really boring job for most people, going through curriculum, hiring policies, and so forth. And he said, you know, if she had been in some of these school board situations that are kind of circuses of people screaming at each other, she just wouldn't have run mm. because she's not the kind of person who likes that. The problem is, what do you end up with? You end up with the kind of people who like that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. often in institutions, what you end up with are either people who are uh, willing to kind of play that game or you have people who are able to so numb themselves and shut themselves down that they're able to survive what it, what it takes to live in that context. And that is not healthy for anybody. So I want to go back and unpack some of what you said to start this answer. 
And I want to go back to the heresy trial. But before we do that, you, you, you said something with all the institutions in decline. And I think that's true, right? Like Christianity mm-hmm. is decline, in mm-hmm. decline in America. Uh, your former denomination is in decline. Almost every denomination is in decline. Mm-hmm. Um, all the research shows that. What is it about decline that attracts? Like, what is the the connection between the radicalization and tribalization that we've seen in American life and decline? Is there a link there? What is that link? Or is there another explanation for it? Well, I think there are several things. I mean, uh, a yeah. friend of mine, uh, Yuval Lemens, written a, a book called A Time to Build on Institutions. And he he talks about the the cycle that's broken. So mm. institutions are meant, when an institution does its job, it's shaping and forming people to lead the institution and, and, and to carry that forward. They have a character-forming right. uh, job. When the institution doesn't do that uh, and loses credibility and loses uh, trust, ends up not shaping and forming uh, the, the character of people. And then those are the people who have the institution. I mean, it's just a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a cycle that goes through. But I also think it's the case that um, when there is decline in an institution or there's crisis in an institution, often there becomes a panic. Uh, and you have, uh, there was a, an elderly pastor who told me one time, and this has proven to be true in so many cases. He was talking about a group of uh, churches in a city that he knew that always seemed to be fighting with each other. And I said, what's the deal? And he said, you know, all of those churches are in decline and their people really don't kind of know it yet. And that whenever you have those institutions in decline, people start becoming really, really uh, obsessed with policing their boundaries and Mm. who has what title and who has what position. And I found that to be true. You know, it's interesting. Most of our listeners are American, but I live in Canada. I spend a lot of time in the U.S., have a green card, the whole deal, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we in Canada probably became post-Christian 40 years ago, 50 years ago. It happened in the 60s, 70s, for sure. And I was alive as a kid in the 60s, have a memory going back to the 70s and definitely the 80s. We didn't go through a radicalization in the church as the church declined. It kind of became a cowering to the corner, uh, oh, this is going on, uh, I guess we're a minority now kind of kind of thing. Um, and, and there wasn't that now, you know, in the last five, 10 years, we've had some echo of the radical politics in the U S witness the Canadian truckers, et cetera, et cetera. But I would say as a Canadian, not that I'm entitled to speak for our country, uh, that that was an echo of what was happening in the U S it was a direct reflection of what was happening with Donald Trump and the Republican party and the Democrats on the left, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we didn't really have it. And you could argue in the 19th century, I mean, I know a little bit about European politics. Europe definitely was fractionalized and factionalized. And you had the rise of Nazism and fascism in the 1930s in, in Europe. But I don't know that that was directly tied to the decline of the church. The church had been declining for a century in Europe. So I'm just wondering, is there anything uniquely American that has activated the tribalism that you see? 
Well, or maybe yes. maybe my reading of history is wrong. I mean, feel free to correct. Well, I I think your reading of European history is is a bit wrong because okay. I mean, if you think about the rise of uh, fascism uh, in the 1920s and 1930s, that that did include a uh, a fear of well our. Uh, Christian heritage as Germans or as Italians that's or fair. Austrians, that that's under assault from some other. Mm-hmm. And so this is why you had, you ended up with the captivity of uh, of the German Christians uh, in the churches. And you see that in, for instance, to be right now in Russia with the way that the Russian Orthodox Church has become an extension in some ways of the state. Uh, so that 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 has happened in a European uh, sense, but I do think I think you're right that there's a unique relationship in American life with religion, and it's like it's like anything else. There are strengths that have a shadow side, uh, and and that's the case. Uh, there, that's the case here. Why was uh, religion, particularly evangelical Christian religion? able to proliferate uh, so quickly in the United States and then from their missionary movements all over the world, well, it's because you had Baptists and Methodists and uh, some others who were highly entrepreneurial. Uh, Mm -hmm. They didn't have to go through a committee checklist to go out onto the frontier and preach uh, and start a church and church plant. Uh, and so you you had that highly entrepreneurial kind of model and a highly populist uh, model that has a lot of strengths, but it ended up having some some terrible drawbacks too when the shadow side emerges from that. Hmm. Um, let's go back to your trial. So <laughs> it's not, it's quote heresy, close quotes, right? You, you're being interrogated by a committee. And can you replay the incident or incidents that led up to that uh, questioning? Well, there were, there were really three broad uh, issues that led to uh, a lot of these problems. One of them was the, uh, was the Trump phenomenon. And uh, I, of course, uh, was, a, was not on board with Donald Trump, am not on board with uh, Donald Trump and had from really, uh, someone said uh, the other day from 2015 on, and that's, it really was from 2014 on because uh, Donald Trump had uh, had blasted Christian missionaries in 2014 when there was the uh, talk of uh, treating Ebola-infected uh, missionaries. And he said something along the lines of, they, they knew what they were getting into. They need to pay the consequences of it. Uh, so it, it had been going going back uh, a long way. That was a key uh, part of it. There were also questions of race, and within the uh, within our denomination, which of course was was uh, formed in the in advance of the Civil War in, in order to protect slaveholding. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it was a a really really incendiary uh, point point, uh, and then the issue of uh, sexual abuse 
which also includes with it the question of women and uh, the treatment of women and the place of women. And all of these things kind of converged in, in various ways, but those were, those were the three central problems. Well, you and Beth Moore, and by the way, um, you know, we have a lot of Southern Baptist listeners. I work with Southern Baptist churches. We work with a broad coalition of people, um, you know, all the way from charismatics through to conservative evangelicals, through to mainline, through to even some people who would consider themselves progressive. I want this to be a fairly large tent. I would share, I think, a lot of your convictions from what I know about you. So, I mean, I'm definitely on the conservative evangelical side, but, but, you know, I think, I think we need to have a wide tent, particularly when you're a minority culture. Um, So I'm not out to bash any denomination. You left Beth Moore, who's been on this podcast, friend of yours left and, and others. What went into your decision to step out of the Southern Baptist denomination? Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I often have to make clear is that, that that's not a decision for anybody else. I mean, I yeah. think I, my, uh, my closest friends are still uh, SBC. And I think some of them initially thought, oh, are you going to... Uh, are you going to think badly of me from... No, uh, that's... Uh, <laughs> Why I stayed for a long, long time, uh-huh. uh, and so if it was a situation for me uh, where I said I couldn't, in good conscience, uh, stay in the system that I was a part of, and some of that was because I was seeing a lot of people who were coming into uh, Southern Baptist life. Um, either uh, either they were SBC, but they were kind of at the margins and they were coming in and getting involved or people who were actually affiliating and, and uh, coming in who didn't have the sort of, I mean, I've been, I've been in this light, in this culture nine months before I was born uh, <laughs> on and I've been in, you know, every committee room and every, you know, where all the bodies are buried. Well, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so I know the the situation really well. And a lot of those people were coming in and getting really hurt uh, by an institutional culture, not by, uh, not by most of the people who are in the pews, not by mm-hmm. most of the pastors, but an institutional culture that was hurting them. And so it was almost as though I was, um, I was bringing people into something, um, in some ways under false pretenses, in order to say, well, that you know, here, here's what the SBC is, because I was, I, I was, my wife says I still am, an SBC cheerleader, uh, and you know, I really believed in. Uh, our cooperative missions and and so forth. Um, so that was that was the the case for me, but it's not the case for uh, a lot of other people. And sometimes I'll say, in really, this applies. I have this conversation all the time with people who are in all kinds of different denominations or church traditions or institutions who will say, how do you know if you should leave or, or stay 
And there's not an easy answer to that because um, there's a kind of leaving that just says, okay, well, I'm going to go find a, a place of refuge somewhere else uh, and, and just leave. And a lot of times what happens then is you have people who, if they had pressed on, um, would have come through uh, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. You also have a situation where there are a lot of people who stay in toxic systems and end up destroying themselves and others uh, by by doing that. And and so you have to kind of know which situation you're in, and it's not always easy. And I I for me, what I found was I had to leave because I am too Southern Baptist in the sense that this kind of response, uh, I knew rationally what it was. I knew how to map all that out, but it felt, uh, it felt like exile. You know, it, mm. it, it, my mind could differentiate between that sort of shenanigans and Jesus saying, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. <laughs> But my limbic system really couldn't, or my my heart really uh, couldn't, and so I would find that that was the situation I was in, and you know, it it came to the point where I thought I'm really not able to fix this because in order to fix this system that we have, um, it can't just be fixed by saying, let's just kind of ignore this and, and wait till it passes. And so I didn't want to, I didn't want to do what it would take to, um, to, to win, you know, and I, and, and most people, I mean, every year at the Southern Baptist Convention meeting, which was always the happiest, one of the happiest times of, uh, of the year, I would leave encouraged, affirmed, uh, you know, all, all, all the way through. But it was what happened between those meetings. And, and so I just realized I can't fix that. And so, and that's why in, in my situation, my, uh, my particular ministry, I loved every minute of it. Uh, I had the most amazing team. I had the most amazing and supportive board. It was not anything to do with my particular ministry or institution. It was that larger system. And I realized I don't have the power to really help with that. So it's time for me to do something else. I left a denomination about a decade and a half ago and and completely resonate with, uh, hey, this size fits me. Um, I'm not recommending anybody do anything. I think that's a really individual decision. Yeah. And uh, I get asked about it all the time. And I'm like, well, you know, those are my reasons. I don't know whether they're your reasons. And yeah. it's, a, it's a soul-searching time for sure. Russell, what did you learn about yourself uh, in leaving the denomination of the time since then? Well, I, I think I... I learned just how entwined and embedded I am uh, with my denominational tradition um, in a way that I think it was it was almost necessary to 
free me from that for, for me. But, and I say am instead of was because, I mean, I have a Baptist hymnal right here next to me uh, on, the, on the desk. And I, I, that's just who I am. That's who I was shaped to be. And that's who, who I am. Uh, so I think I saw I saw that, and I also saw though uh, my reliance on a group of people who were distant enough uh, in the sense that they were outside of my immediate context. So they didn't have a stake in uh, in me staying or or leaving, but who knew knew me. Uh, and were able to give counsel and able to give uh, wisdom, encouragement, and so forth. And I, I, I learned just how reliant I am on that. And and I think also the sense that um, I think I see in my own life that when I see other people who are going through awful uh, situations, a lot of times when it's clearly sort of ridiculous, I just assume, well, they know that. And I just sort of laugh it off and, and shrug it off and don't think, well, that person needs me to, to say, hey, <laughs> I'm, I'm, not only am I with you, but you haven't, you haven't done anything wrong. And now I think I'm a lot more sensitive to that because for a while, uh, well, I say for a while, it's still the case that one of the most stressful things in my life is getting a, a text message that says praying for you because my- <laughs> Yeah, those are never good. They're always oh, loaded, right? <laughs> my immediate response is what's happened? So my closest friends now know that they have a preface to say, nothing's happening, nothing's going on. I just happen to be thinking about you today. <laughs> <laughs> pray for you, grateful for you. So I think I'm a lot more sensitive to that going on than uh, than I was before. Any advice? Uh, and again, this is not a recommendation that people stay or leave at denominations. But any advice for those who are leaving or in the process of leaving or thinking of leaving about how to do it well? Well, I think the the one thing is to make sure that you're protecting yourself from bitterness or rage or anger. And uh, we, we were talking about Tim Keller before we went on the air. One of the things that, that Tim said to me in the middle of some of this stuff was to say, now make sure that you watch your anger. And I said, I'm not angry at all. And I genuinely wasn't. Um, and he said, yeah, that's what concerns me. Because you can, you can have a kind of anger that you don't think you should have that can then get redirected. And that's dangerous too. You've got you've to watch that. And I think he was right. And so I would say watch for, for anger and bitterness and what it does to you. And then also for people who have, and, and my problem wasn't bitterness, um, my problem was, and a lot of my closest friends said this, your temptation is to a kind of nostalgia that just sort of erases those things uh, and, and looks back longingly. 
uh, kind of mm. Lot's wife sort of a, a situation. And that is completely accurate and has proven to be completely accurate all the time. And my wife, well, we saw uh, there was somebody who had written about being uh, an alcoholic and that one of the things she had to do was to put a, a little note on her mirror that says it really was that bad because she knew she would just sort of forget about all of those things and think, you know, those times weren't that bad, and she'd find herself slipping back into it. Hmm. And so I have to have people who are who are doing that. I mean, and, and some of that is because, you know, I there's a lot that I intentionally uh, do not know and don't want to know. So I, I really, I didn't read any articles uh, at all about any of this ever still haven't uh and i don't i didn't want people to say hey you know what so and so uh said about you i i just didn't want to know that uh kind of stuff it wasn't helpful to me at all so that can lead you to a sort of well you know maybe maybe everything was was fine and i i just because of the way i was raised mm-hmm. that's the persistent problem and I find myself kind of longingly uh, looking backward, and my wife will say, uh, "You're, <laughs> you're in Wonderland. That is not the way that things <laughs> happen." So that would be, I would say, just know your own vulnerabilities there as to yeah. as to how to shore those things up beforehand and through. And then the other thing I would say is. Especially if it's if it's an institution or a tradition that you feel like you have to leave, and it's been really shaping on you, mm-hmm. prepare for grief. Yeah, and I mean this this is grief that is genuinely it's very similar to uh, my dad died in twenty twenty. And one of the things that I found was that when he when he initially died, I was kind of able to go into grief and then I was able to get myself back together because I had to preach the funeral and write the obituary and, and do all of those things. And then later, there would be these sort of waves uh, that would come and, and still do. And it's surprising uh, to me that grief isn't just like a intense thing that then kind of goes down like on a graph until it uh, evaporates away. That's not how it works. And it's a very similar uh, situation with a beloved institution or tradition. So you've written a new book, Losing Our Religion. And I want to start with the title, and I'm glad you went there. I remember when the song first came out from R.E.M., I thought, wait, this isn't about losing your religion. It's about Mm -hmm. something else. And I didn't realize it was Southern Expression. You talk about why you chose that title and the other meaning behind Losing Our Religion. It's a beautiful pun or double entendre. Yeah, you know, people, uh, whenever there's something, you know, a news segment or something like that about people who are, uh, losing their faith and uh, walking away from their faith, it, they they would play that song, and it, yeah, it yeah, makes yeah. sense. And it even makes sense in terms of the life of uh, Michael Stipe, the uh, lead singer of REM, who is the grandson of a Methodist. He comes from a line of Methodist ministers, and he's mm-hmm. now has some sort of a Zen Buddhist, I think, or something like that. Sure. 
Uh, so it makes sense. But uh, what they said is that it's not about losing your religion that way. It's it's about the kind of uh, anger that in the expression, I'm about to lose my religion, uh, meaning I'm, a, I'm at that place where politeness is about to give its way over to anger. And what I have seen over the past several years is that those things often are not different things at all. Mm. Uh, that there's a, uh, there are a lot of people who feel themselves to be losing their religion. And what they mean by that is not that they're uh, kind of subtracting beliefs uh, or those sorts of things. It's because they're looking at, they're looking at a kind of religion that they've been in and saying, what was this really all about? And that's happening a lot. It's, it's as recently as this morning, um, conversations that I have with people. Uh, so that really was the impetus behind. And is that happening to you? Is there a sense in which you were about to lose your religion? Like, what no. was this really all about? No, not. And I think the reason for that uh, is because I had already sort of worked through uh, those kinds of things in a time of disillusionment as a teenager. So I'd kind of already gone through that crisis and really examined um, what what do I really believe so that I was able to differentiate um, in a lot of ways Jesus from what happens in Jesus's name. And I had a I had enough time with, Christ and with my faith that I I think maybe if I had been at an earlier time in my life, I probably, I probably would have. I mean, there were, in terms of, if you say losing your religion, there, there were all kinds of ways in which I said and would say, well, the particular religious project that I was involved in had a lot of horrifying elements to them. Uh, to it. And I, uh, I would, and I was talking to somebody who had this experience in a completely different context. There were things that you would look at and you would just have a, this seems crazy to me, but I seem to be the only one who thinks that. So it must just be me. And you just sort of put them out of your mind. And then you look backward and put them all together and think, ah, why why didn't you why didn't you see all of this? And so that was that was more of the question, but not a question of whether to to walk away from the faith. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, and that that was sort of what I was driving at, you know, because the book is a bit of a a, a missive or a, a a letter, an epistle to the modern church, not just your former denomination, but right. to all of us who uh, bear the name of Christ, like, guys, wake up, wake up. And we got a lot of work to do. And I thought, I thought you had some really good points. I want to start with credibility. Um, you tackle that in your work. And, you know, I think, I mean, look at the Barna data, look at the Pew data, Pastors used to be some of the most credible people in our community, and now we're not. We're we're not quite above used car salespeople and lawyers, but we're close. And 
What do you make about why we lost our credibility? Let's start there. Well, I think what we would like to think uh, is that, well, the outside culture is secularizing and hostile to uh, Christianity, and that's the reason uh, for this. So they're, they're looking at our virtues and they despise them. We would like mm-hmm. to say that. That's not what I think is happening for the most part. I mean, there is, there's some of that. But I think the, for the far more dangerous thing is that you have people who are looking uh, at us and saying, you don't really believe what you say you believe. Mm-hmm. And we have all kinds of evidence for that uh, here. And, and so that brings to a, that brings to, I mean, I, sometimes I think there is a, um, a fearfulness of the outside secularizing world that can tip over into an anxiety and a panic, uh, and an anger. And with that, desperate times call for desperate measures that actually ends up secularizing uh, because you end up with people whose own kids are then looking and saying, well, if that's what Christianity is, then that's not what I am. And when you have the, the outside world looking at this and saying, oh, so this is really just some sort of political or cultural uh, sort of a thing. And it the, the very thing that people think they're combating, they're actually fueling. <laughs> and that, uh, that, that leads to a, a really diminished uh, sense of credibility. And you add to that, I mean, what we talked about earlier, this loss of institutional trust writ large, where people are asking, what institution can I trust? And not even necessarily can I trust in terms of morally, whether I think it can be evil, but what institution can I trust to actually be competent and mature? And you add that to the mix, and it's a very, very difficult situation. Yeah, and at the heart of it, and you, you tackled this as well, is hypocrisy, right? Like when I read the scriptures, uh, particularly the Gospels, and I kind of look at the religious leaders of the time and then the people Jesus really hung up with. I always feel like I'm right on the edge of being on the wrong side of that story, if not perhaps often on the wrong side of the story. And then I look at the church as a whole, judgmentalism, hypocrisy, um, some of the things you mentioned earlier, right? Just the condoning of abuse or uh, covering things up, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, gosh, like it's just, it's so hard to to find Jesus in the midst of this. Uh, what are your thoughts on hypocrisy in, and we'll, t- we'll talk about the life of the institutional church because uh, I think we've seen that perhaps elevate and move to new levels over the last, I mean, Kinnaman and, and, and Gabe Lyons, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons wrote about that in 2007 in the book Unchristian. And if anything, that's just amplified over the last 16 years. What are your thoughts on hypocrisy? I really don't think hypocrisy is the problem. And I, I, I kind of wish it were. Uh, because if you think about the, the classic cliche, hypocrisy is the uh, tribute that vice pays to virtue, uh, which is to say, well, this is the way that we 
ought to behave with character and integrity, so let's pretend like we are. Uh, That's not what's happening right now. I mean, it is to some degree, but it always has. It's worse than that. It's a lot worse than that, Uh, which is a a sense of uh, there's such a lowered expectation Mm. that there is... Uh, in many case, in many cases, a valorizing of cruelty and power for the sake of power, and even uh, sexual predation, and all of these these other things, in a way that you know, one of the things that was was most surprising to me in dealing with some of really awful uh, abuses of power is the way that many people would respond with, I mean, grow up. This is, this is the way uh, people are. And so you have, to, you have to play that game. Well, that is a re- really, really diminished uh, sense of what, of what humanity ought to be generally, but even more so of what the church ought to be. Hmm. So... That's not hypocrisy. What is it? Calling evil good and good evil? Like, what, yeah, what is it, Russell? I called it, it's kind of, if you think about the prosperity gospel, mm. which says if you believe, um, you'll, you'll flourish uh, financially and, and, and in terms of your health. This is kind of a depravity gospel that, that says, well, yeah, you're awful, but so is everybody else. And that means that awfulness is the way to win. And that is what has sort of set set in at at every level. And the problem with it, I was um, th- there's a a sense in which no one wants to be naive, and nobody wants to to be seen that way. And so you you find yourself in a mode where you think you're being realistic, and what you're really becoming is Machiavellian, and. Uh, and and social Darwinist in ways that are really really destructive of of the church's witness of institutional life and maybe more importantly of your own conscience and your own soul because you start to adjust um, and, and that's that's one of the things that happens is we're always able to talk ourselves into saying okay well here's why I'm living with whatever it is. I mean, you can look at uh, white pastors in the Jim Crow South in the United States, uh, including a lot of them who knew better uh, when it came to the kind of racial injustice that was happening around them. And what were they doing? Uh, Most of them were saying, well, in order to have, in order to really help bad things from happening, I have to have a place at the table. And uh, in order to have a place at the table, I have to conserve my influence. And so that means I can't speak to this right now. Which ultimately, I mean, there's never comes a point in which someone says, oh, now is the risk-free time for integrity. <laughs> that that doesn't happen, mm. and so you just end up conserving it all the way through, and it does, it does tremendous damage to the way that Jesus talks about the the inner and the outer to to line up. When yeah. when that starts to be 
torn apart, it leads to it leads to all kinds of further further destruction. So what do you do? Because you're not alone. And I mean, you're an insider saying, yeah, there's corruption and there is sin and it's not hypocrisy, it's intent, right? Like I'm intending to wound, I'm intending to hurt. And you've seen that at some of the highest levels. And that kind of plays into the critics' worst fear that that's really what the church is about. What do you, what do, you do with that? Like, how do, you, how do you call that out if you see that? What, like, you know, I always want to believe it's not as bad as they say. I'm the optimist. Like, you got to find some good people out there. But yeah, there, there are some really bad actors at work mm-hmm. across different traditions within the church. What do you do when you see it, Russell? Well, I think the, the really uh, dangerous thing that many people adopt is this idea, well, if you just don't talk about it and talk about all the good things that are uh, going on, uh, that that will keep the church from being criticized by uh, her enemies. Right. And you can just sort of ride uh, things out. When in reality, what you end up doing in that case is completely destroying uh, credibility, including on the inside with the generations that are to come who know what's going on. Yeah. And so because yeah. you haven't uh, talked about it or addressed it, there are uh, many people who would assume, okay, well, then maybe that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I uh, talked about it in the book, of, uh, I think, a lady who uh, came up to me one time and said, my daughter's having a theological crisis. She went away to college, helped me with her. And I said, okay, well, what, what is her crisis? And I was expecting it to be, you know, she's fallen in with the wrong crowd or she's taking existential philosophy and she's, you know, but it was, she's got a lot of uh, non-believing, atheist, agnostic, other kinds of secularist friends and they display peace, joy, love, gentleness, self-control, often in ways that she does not see in the church. Well, Mm. there's a, a, an ancient biblical and Christian uh, answer to that. I mean, that that shouldn't have been uh, surprising. But if you, if you say, if we just don't talk about those realities, then they will go away. That's just not the way Jesus responds to these things. And it's, it's also the case that what, what we want to do and what's easy to do is to say, let's talk about what's happening out in the world, but not to talk about what's happening on the inside, which is the exact opposite of what uh, the Apostle Paul says we are to do in yeah. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And it's also... That has a very light and trivial view of the church. So the the golden cabs that Jeroboam put up at Bethel were worse than the paganisms going on uh, around the the world. It was worse because it was using the uh, name of God and using the place of uh, where God had met with. Jacob and met with his people at Bethel, it was, it was worse. It was actually a blasphemy. And often what we have going on on the inside is not just that we're 
doing the wrong thing, but we're doing the wrong thing and we're saying we're doing this because this is what Jesus is like. Mm. And that is, I mean, if, if you think about, um, if you think about uh, Jesus himself, he is saying ahead of time, I'm telling you all these things so you won't be alarmed. And then the, the first extended uh, words that we have from Jesus after his ascension um, are really brutally honest uh, words to uh, the church. And why? Because he, the church is the body of Christ. Church is to be united to Christ. And so it, it's, it's important. It's really important. If the church is just another, you know, interest group or group of people, then yeah, I guess PR is good enough for you. But if the church is actually the demonstration plot of the kingdom of God, then it's quite another thing altogether. Uh, just a quick excursus. What is the biblical answer you would have given to that mother who was concerned about her daughter, whose friends, secular friends, were displaying more Christian virtues than her Christian friends were? Well, the, the tension that we have in the, in the scripture of createdness and, and fallenness. So uh, that, that people are, uh, all people created in the image of God, all people who have conscience and all people who then are going to uh, display this. And, and also that you have fallenness that is uh, universal. And I think one of, the, one of the problems is a lot of times the way that we prepare, uh, we think that we're preparing next generations of Christians is by giving them a really scary caricatured view of um, people or ideologies that are on the outside to the point that a lot of times when people actually then talk to those people, uh, they start to realize, oh, wait, these aren't supervillains in these a lair. These are fantastic people. These are fantastic people. And totally. Of, of course, because, uh, because that's nobody or very few people uh, sit down and say, let me find a way to be evil. Uh, you know, that's, that's not the way that people live. And so having that more complex view of human nature is, is what's actually preparing people. So um, tribalism and nostalgia, those are two things that you have lots of thoughts on. Can you talk about what tribalization, you could call it the ideological um, bent or the political partisan bent, partisan, I should say, bent that a lot of church leaders are on, sometimes to the left, but a lot on the right. Um, yeah. what, what, are, what are we losing uh, well, when it, we do that? Yeah, you know, sometimes people will say, uh, what about all of the politics? And, and I'll say we have almost no politics mm -hmm. because what politics actually is, is uh, people who are working together in the civic space to get yes. things done. That is not what we're seeing. What we're seeing are people who are finding ways to have belonging and to have meaning in partisan uh, or, or culturally defined groups that is largely not defined by what the group loves together as who the group hates together 
or who the group's afraid of uh, together. So I'm not that. And that's one of the reasons why you can even see uh, the, the way that people can completely change ideologies if their partisan tribe and group changes uh, those ideologies. And mm-hmm. I mean, uh, pollster after pollster has demonstrated you can do this. You can call the same person and say, do you agree with Barack Obama that, and give a statement, and then wait a few minutes and say, do you agree with Donald Trump that? And y- you, will have, uh, you will have yes and no, uh, even though it's the exact same uh, issue because it's about who am I and where do I, where do I belong? Hmm. And that ultimately leads to exhaustion, and that's where we are. That's where we are right now. And it's, it's just, it's also not the way of Jesus, who, if you look at what's happening in the Gospels, uh, a lot of it is about, wait, which, which of our groups are you in? Mm-hmm. And he just walks right through that. It's like and none of the above. Let's none keep of moving, the above. Right? <laughs> yeah, calling both a zealot and a tax collector to be disciples. Yeah, uh, I mean that it's an entirely different way of being. And yeah. I, I think one of the things that's happened is, you know, we talk about sort of post-Christian world and and secularized world. What we don't realize is how we have secularized. Uh, and and I mean, sometimes even the loudest religious people, and sometimes I mean even especially the loudest religious people. Because as, as one person said, the thinner the identity, the louder. Because you mm. have to somehow prove Good. that you're uh, that you're this. And and so True. You, you can have this sort of secularizing of spiritual warfare language. Um, that is the opposite of what the New Testament teaches, not against flesh and blood. But when you demonize people, I mean, you, you think about what that, that language, our, our language and our metaphors, they shape us. And one of the things that do, demons are not redeemable. Demons are wholly evil and, uh, and irredeemable. Once we start having that attitude toward people to whom we're to bear witness and demonstrate the, the reality of, of Christ, we're not doing what Jesus told us to do. The other big thing we're seeing um, intensify in our day is what you talk about as nostalgia, right? This idea that if we could only get back to the Reagan era, or the Eisenhower era, if we could only take over the Supreme Court and get it back to what it was before, the governorship or uh, whatever, make our schools the way we want them to. Talk about the power of nostalgia. Uh, what's at stake and why it has such a grip on so many conservative evangelicals right now? Well, a lot of this sort of nostalgia is a is a really low view of human fallenness uh, and a really low view of the power of the Holy Spirit. Because what we do is we, we imagine, and all of us do this. I mean, we do this in our own lives. Uh, we, we look backward. I found myself doing that. I wrote that chapter. And then just maybe two weeks ago, I was in this very room with my wife. Something came up about the 1990s. And I said, oh, we're at the 90s crate. <laughs> oh, wish we, uh, 
and, and I, the music oh, was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of things were, but but you know the the reason that the 1990s are so uh, great and idyllic in my mind is that I know how they end. <laughs> so mm. you're, you're not in the middle of it. When you're in the middle of it, yeah. you're you're wondering what's going on. Where where's the future? You can look back without all of those uh, worries and stresses and only see the good things. And we can do that societally as well. And so a lot of times you will have people saying the problem is uh, the way that this culture has fallen apart. We need to get back to the way that it that it was. And the culture fell apart somewhere between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers uh, <laughs> right. long before we had any uh, understanding. And in every era then, you have human sin and fallenness. It manifests itself sometimes in kind of an outright paganism and sometimes as kind of a self-righteous uh, Christianity. It can manifest itself in any way, but it's fallenness. And in every era the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And if we don't remember that, then we're going to be looking backward and saying, well, let's get back to there rather than, rather than saying, okay, Jesus is raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the father. I'm united to him by the Holy spirit, which means his future is my future. His past is my past. His future is my future. That ought to liberate us from the kind of, especially the kind of nostalgia that becomes weaponized. It, it's not just sort of a, oh, it was great then. It becomes, who took this away from me? Hmm. And that can then put us into this sort of perpetual outrage uh, cycle. And we want to know who are the people who did this uh, so that we can find some some kind of retribution for them. And that's just not the way of Christ. So what's the way out, forward, ahead? I mean, it can be a very despairing thing, right? Cynicism is not that difficult to find no, right no. now in this moment. So where's uh, what's the way forward, Russell? Well, I think the, the way forward is, I think there are a lot of people who think, I, I quoted in the book Wendell Berry, who said to a group of environmental activists one time, you, you think that the solutions have to be as big as the problems when most problems are resolved by many small-scale uh, so solutions. And so you, there's not a lot that any one person or any one church can do about the big picture of what's happening in the world, what's happening in uh, religion, those sorts of things. What you can do is to recognize that and be renewed uh, in your in your mind, which is to say, okay, I see, I see that I'm going to ground myself in the word, in prayer. I'm going to recognize and look for these signs of life that are around me. I'm not going to panic. I'm going to. I'm going to trust that Jesus actually is going to uh, keep his promises. And I'm also going to make sure that I don't overreact to the last bad thing, which, which is you know, often what we do is to say, okay, well, this was bad. So whatever's the complete opposite of that is the answer. Hmm. No, 
I'm going to be grounded in cultivating a conscience that is informed by the Holy Spirit and by the Word. And what you will often find is sometimes you'll feel like you're by yourself uh, in that. And then you start to see, oh, wait, God actually is at work all over the place, and now these people are finding each other. Mm. And that's what I see happening uh, right now. And and you, you look at that, it's happening all over the world. Uh, so Christianity, uh, whatever happens in the American church, Christianity is doing fine. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's much bigger. So I got to ask you, with everything you've seen, with everything you've experienced, with everything that's been thrown at you, how have you not become an ex-evangelical? How have you not just thrown up your hands? I mean, you've taken on new leadership responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. Why did you not just go, ah, it's too hard. I'm going to read my Bible, live out my days, or just like given up and thrown the baby out with the bathwater? Well, I think because, I, I mean, I believe, I really believe Jesus is alive. I mean, I, I, I just, I, I really believe, as, as one person put it, the Easter women weren't lying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I really, I really yeah. believe that. And then you add to it, I mean, I, um, I noticed myself getting a little uh, cynical uh, at one point, and I snapped out of it because I was standing over my son Jonah baptizing him. Uh, at at our congregation. And as I was doing that, the words just came to me, um, I will give you no sign except for the sign of Jonah. The Son of Man is alive, and the Ninevites repented when they heard that word. I mean, that's Mm. the the sign of of Jonah is all around us. Mm -hmm. And I just stopped and said, how in the world can I be cynical when I'm looking down at this miracle, and how can I not respond to that with awe and and gratitude? A lot of times that's hard to do. And what I would say to somebody is not, oh, don't get cynical, don't Mm -hmm. get bitter. I would just say, just notice and say, God, I think I'm getting cynical and I don't know what to do about that. Right. That right. breaks the power of it. It's not, oh, uh, you know, make sure that you do all of these things to get out of it. Just the recognition, I'm powerless in front of this, but I'm crying out and expressing that to God. That's what's important. You also signed up to be editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, which used to be a fairly neutral thing, but it's not anymore. It's too been weaponized and polarized, and people would think that's a good thing or a bad thing. Why did you decide in yet another form to put yourself back in the front line of leadership? Because I I really do believe in this mission, and because I think that, uh, I think that they're... Um, there is a church that is in need of equipping and also a church that is, uh, whose gospel is in need of proclaiming. And so I, I just don't think we can, I don't think we have the privilege to get exhausted and give up. What question have I not asked you or have other people not asked you that you think needs to be asked? Oh, 
I, I, I don't know. I, I can't, uh, I can't think. I, I was actually thinking about that the other day because I was rereading uh, Walker Percy's uh, questions that they never asked me. So he did mm. an interview with himself. <laughs> and, and one of them is, how can you stay? He was Catholic. How can you yeah. stay in the Catholic Church given all of the disasters? And he said, well, it's a sign of its supernatural origin that it's been able to survive uh, all of this uh, fraud and deceit. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I get it. But I, I can't think of anything that no one's asked me. Really. And nothing that you're chomping at the bit to talk about that no one's given you the opportunity to. I don't think so. I think what? I've kind of laid it out there, yeah. That's great. Well, the book is called Losing Our Religion. And where can people, I mean, obviously at Christianity Today, but where else can people find you online these days? Where are you active? Uh, well, I'm, my Twitter account is at Dr. Moore, D.R. Moore. Uh, but I'm finding myself spending a lot more time on threads these days. Oh, cool. And I'm, I, I really, for whatever reason, it's, yeah, I just, I really like it so far and I hope that uh, keeps up. So that's you over on threads and it's so funny because Twitter is now X, of course, but everybody yeah. who writes about it has to say formerly known as Twitter. It's right. becoming the prince of social media. <laughs> the artist formerly known as Prince, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Elon. <laughs> Russell, this has been a delight. Thank you. This is long overdue. I'm so glad to finally have you on my podcast and particularly in this moment where I think we need a voice somewhere from the middle, from the normal. And uh, I really appreciate what you shared today. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. I really appreciate his honesty in all of that. And I hope that helps you understand the nuance. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation. It's not to throw one tribe under the bus against another, etc. I mean... It's just a nuanced conversation. That's what you don't get online. That's why we have longer podcasts. This is why we do the show. And uh, next episode, man, I am so excited. Kyle Eidelman is back. But first, check out a couple of free resources. If you haven't yet checked out my On The Rise newsletter, I'm going to share two interesting trends this Friday. So you're going to miss it, all right? Because it's the only place I publish it. This Friday, ontherisenewsletter.com. You can subscribe with over 100,000 other leaders starting today. And we'll send you a sample newsletter if you do that. And 10 by 10 has a two-minute quiz. And after you take it, you can begin receiving free curated resources designed for your youth ministry needs. Not a lot of spam, stuff that actually helps you. Go to 10by10.org. That's T-E-N-X-1-0.org. Well, Kyle Eidelman is coming up next time. We talk about redefining moral failure. It was a short moment, but one of my favorite moments on the podcast this year. Productivity as identity. Man, we've gotten into some really honest conversations. This one as well, and it will not disappoint. Here's an excerpt. And so in my frustration, I said to my friend, I'm like, hey, I, yeah, I'm afraid people are going to hear this, and they're going to think there's been some kind of moral failure. And, and he stopped me, and he's like, um, hey, you— you know, you are a moral failure, right? Like, you know that, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, no, you know what I mean? Like, you, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? And he's like, no, like you're, you're are, if you spend these next three months concerned about what degree of moral failure people think you are, then you don't really know the gospel very well. So that's Kyle Eidelman next time on the podcast. Also coming up, Philip Yancey's coming back, William Vanderblumen, Jenny Katrin, Karen Gordon, J.P. Pakluda, Gabriel McCullough, John Ortberg, John Mark Comer, and a whole lot more coming up on the podcast. And one more thing, because you listened all the way to the end, and thank you for doing that. 
I would love to get you the preaching cheat sheet. So last month, I preached a series for the first time in a long time, and I used it basically to see whether my sermon was going to hit before I delivered it. Yes, I created it, but I hadn't preached a whole series in a year. Uh, I would love to give it to you for free. Go to preachingcheatsheet.com. We've helped tens of thousands of leaders with this resource. Make sure you get it, preachingcheatsheet.com, or click the link in the podcast episode description. Thank you so much, everybody. I so appreciate everything you're doing. I know it's hard out there. Hopefully this is making a difference. And I hope in some way that this helped you identify and perhaps break a growth barrier you're facing.